0: Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. On the heels of Paul Kingsnorth's call to rebel against the dark side of the technological empire, The following session on A Humane Politics could have been retitled The Machine Strikes Back. But despite the technical difficulties, smoothed over as much as possible in the following podcast, a plucky trio, or maybe a quartet, persisted in exposing the forces of dehumanization and pointing the way to something better. Adam Smith begins by questioning the war on suffering, as currently fought, Mark Mitchell climbs the Tower of Babel in search of the true politics of Logos. Finally, in an era of declining religious influence, yours truly looks to the example of Francis Schaeffer. Port stalwart Jeff Pallett offers an opening reflection and introduces the panel.
1: I'm one of the in this room along with Kate and Mark and Jason and Bill. There are a number of us uh, that have been to every one of these conferences so far. This one, Jeff, may very well be the best one we've had so far. I Can't think of a finer keynote speech that we've had than the one we just had. But now we're gonna move on to a far <laughs> more depressing topic than the one that uh, Paul Kings North talked about. Uh, you look at, around at our country today and according to a recent opinion poll done by the University of Virginia, one third of the people in this country believe that this democracy is no longer viable. About 40% of the people in this country believe that it is permissible and, and you ought to use violence to make sure that the other side not enact their programs. About half the people think that the government should forcefully restrict views that people in the government find offensive, make our libertarian friends happy. About half of Americans believe that if they lose in the next presidential election, the state that they belong to should secede from the Union. Now it's front porch republic, so the threat of secession might not be quite as alarming here as it is in other places, but Clearly, there are all kinds of challenges in our contemporary politics. And so uh, we have titled this panel Humane Politics, which may strike the ear as an oxymoron. But I'm used to oxymorons. I was a pessimistic professor at Hope College uh, for years (laughs) until I realized that college education was an oxymoron. Uh, Not having learned my lesson, I took the job as the director of the Gerald R. Ford Leadership Forum. (laughs) 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 I I knew Bill would like that one. (laughs) Uh, uh, My boss isn't watching, I don't think, so I can get away with that. But you know, there are other ones, uh, you know, two two phrases that I use pretty regularly, uh, you know, good grief or uh, pretty ugly. You know, the Kinks, uh, you know, had a good song with an oxymoron, it definitely may be. Taylor Swift has sung about eyes whispering. So I, I did that for Kirsten, I put in a Taylor Swift reference. Apparently you can't do anything these days without a Taylor Swift reference. Uh, you can uh, use oxymorons to sell things such as a McDonald's Happy Meal or, uh, or Microsoft Works. <laughs> And of course you can use oxymorons to describe things such as bill kaufman's sartorial splendor the word humane is obviously related to the word human but it communicates qualities that are befitting of a human being the term has an old lineage and the kind of qualities that were typically associated with the word were things such as courtesy friendliness civility being obliging to one another, tenderness, kindness, compassion. These are the humane things and things that we don't typically associate with our politics. And I think one of the reasons why we don't really associate being humane with our politics is because these qualities I just mentioned do not scale well. The word human is obviously related to the word humus, dirt. If we want to think about politics, we have to think of it in the context of our lives as ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It's what it means to be human, to be of the earth, and to be of a particular place. And that politics really plays a, a subordinate role in the span of our lives and in the span of the species. You know, how small of human heart! how small of all that human hearts endure parts, laws, or kings can cause or cure. Of course, a humane politics is a politics that is a small politics. It doesn't try to do more than that. Paul mentioned during his speech this idea of there being a cultural throne. And it put me in mind of this passage from Matthew 25, which I'll read. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will come and say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer them and say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. And then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed people into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger and you did not invite me in and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. These will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I imagine the goats saying at that moment, But Lord, I voted for a person who is going to be the chief executive officer of a massive centralized bureaucracy that I had deputized to do all these things. Shouldn't that count? And my guess is Jesus will say, No, that won't count. Because when I asked you to do these things, I asked you to do these for your neighbors, and I asked you to do them yourself. A humane politics is a politics that doesn't scale. It's connected to the earth. It's connected to the dust. It's connected to a place. This is how we do these things because we can't serve the people before the king on his throne that we do not see. We can't know them if we don't see them and we can't understand them if we don't know them and we can't love them if we don't understand them. I think this is why Chesterton said Christ demands of us two very difficult things, to love our enemies and to love our neighbors. And often, Chesterton said, it's the same person. The idea of a humane politics is a difficult politics. And I think that's part of the reason why we don't like to do it. We like to do the easy politics where we can slough off our responsibilities to an anonymous power. But that is not the kind of politics I think we will be seeking here today on our panel. And uh, with that, I will uh, turn this over to our panelists. Uh, To my immediate left is uh, John Murdoch, who, uh, by the way, hosts our podcast, which I highly recommend that you listen to. Uh, To his left is Mark Mitchell, the president of FPR, and obviously one of the original founders of FPR, and in many ways, the brain behind the whole operation, so you can blame him for a lot of the stuff that's going on. And then to his left, Adam Smith from the University of Dubuque, and you can read about them in your brochure. And with that, Adam, I will turn it over to you.
2: Paul ended his talk by encouraging us to be saints or to look for saints. Since I'm in Madison, I thought I would start my talk by invoking a local saint. I know some of you might be visiting Aldo Leopold's shack tomorrow uh, with John. I hear there's some spots available, actually, if you still want to sign up for that. So here's a quote from Sand County Almanac. It's a well-known passage where he's talking about shooting a wolf. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then and have known ever since that there was something new to me in those eyes something known only to the mountain. I was young then and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view." End quote. Now, whatever wolves and mountains think and whatever Aldo Leopold came to understand, it's obvious that a lot of human beings still do agree with such a view. Plenty of people still feel the the trigger itch, and not all of them have the excuse of being young. But the thing is, it's not usually the hunters these days who feel that itch to control the landscape and make it paradise. So I'm a philosopher. Let me give you an example from uh, academic philosophy world. Martha Nussbaum is one of the most influential and respected thinkers today. In fact, she's influenced me a lot, and I have a lot of respect for her. But in some of her recent work, she argues that, assuming that we have the technical ability, we might have a moral duty to stop predators from eating their prey. This is called the predator problem. This follows from her idea that one of our basic moral duties is to prevent suffering whenever we can. When the wolf kills a deer, the deer suffers. And if we can, we should stop that from happening. Maybe by genetically engineering the wolf to survive on grass or providing it with lab-grown venison. Now, if you think that there is an easy rebuttal to her argument, then you're wrong. You're thinking, for example, that wolves eating deer is just natural, then she's going to remind you that men raping women is also natural, or at least that this has often been how people have excused it. For her, it is not about what's natural. It's about suffering, natural or otherwise. And she says, quote, the death of a gazelle after a painful torture is just as bad for the gazelle when torture is inflicted by a tiger as when it is done by a human being, end quote. Now, there are ways to rebut this claim, but this is not a philosophy conference, and Nussbaum's argument isn't really my subject. It's just a, an especially stark example of the first thing that I do want to talk about, which is what Ivan Illich called the war against all suffering. Nussbaum is fighting the war on suffering, more than that. She's advancing the front lines of that war deep into the hostile territory of nature. Leopold killed the wolf so the deer could live, albeit so then he could go and shoot some more deer. Nussbaum also wants the deer to live, but she's more humane. She only wants to kill the wolf's spirit. The wolf must live, the green fire has to die. I'm betting that most people in this audience came here with a pretty visceral sense of what Illich is talking about, even if you've never read his work and aren't familiar with that phrase. Nussbaum is on the front lines where things get weird because that's where philosophers like me like to be. But The war on suffering is very old it's been going on for a long time, and most people live well behind the front lines in the world that the war has built and it's just everyday life. The everyday war on suffering is probably on my mind right now because we're just about to have our third child. In fact, I have my phone, my machine in my pocket with the ringer on, which is very bad, I know, just in case my wife calls me and I have to leave in the middle of the talk. I'm sure some of you have some personal experience with what's called the medicalization of childbirth. And I mean all the unnecessary monitoring and the intervention, including the pressure to induce or even sometimes to undergo a C-section. It's the subject of sustained and intense criticism, not just in books by gadflies like Illich, but in prestigious medical journals and in the recommendations of professional associations. None of that criticism has made much difference though, because the medicalization of childbirth is part of the war. And to the good soldiers in the birthing suite, every intervention becomes necessary if if there is any chance that it will prevent suffering. There are two hospitals within five minutes of our house, but my wife drives an hour away to her appointment so that she can be seen by a midwife who is not a very good soldier, and is for that reason, a very good midwife. Unfortunately, the midwife is going to be on on vacation on our baby's official due date, which means there's a chance that the baby will be delivered by a doctor instead. The midwife has already warned my wife about the pressure the doctors will likely put her under the lectures that they'll give her for not wanting to do this or that. Now which do you think that my wife is more anxious about the suffering of giving birth, or the war that the doctor wants to fight against that suffering? So it's clear, I hope, what I think of the war on suffering. I don't want the green fire to die, and I'm betting you're with me. But I want all of us hopeless romantics to sit for a minute with the conviction that fuels Nussbaum's war. Deep down the war on suffering is fueled by the feeling that no matter how pretty it is. Maybe the green fire isn't worth the pain. Which of us hasn't felt the force of that feeling? At least once in our lives, if not every day. Very human feeling. In fact, I think if you've never felt it, if you've never felt not just the spark of compassion, but a flicker of existential rebellion against the terms of the cosmic deal, no meaning without suffering, then a fire has gone cold in your soul. And I think it's vital to keep those flames of compassion and of rebellion even from going out but the war on suffering is something else compassion and rebellion are human responses to suffering but the war on suffering is not compassion and it's not rebellion the war on suffering feeds on those human feelings like a parasite feeding on its host it takes what is most fully human about us our ability to suffer with other creatures and our ability to wrestle with God And it takes those essentially human qualities and uses them to make us less than human. The war on suffering follows a single moral rule. Thou shalt do what thou canst. You must do what you can do. If you can prevent or relieve suffering, then you must. That is the rule that Nussbaum is following. What this means is that the only limits to our obligations, and make no mistake, we are talking about obligations are technical limits so as soon as the limits are broken the limits to what we must do not to what we can do if we want are also broken war on suffering is not just the desire is not the desire and the determination to relieve another's suffering it's not a noble argument with god it's more than just wishing we could change the terms of the cosmic deal and have meaning without suffering war is fueled not by wishful thinking but by a sense of righteous duty when offered the choice and this is the choice that technology gives us you must trade meaning for relief from suffering if not a legal duty backed up by force although in some cases it is probably that will become more common it's a perceived moral duty that puts intense pressure on people to conform now like i said the war on suffering has been going on for a long time it's as old as modernity maybe older than that maybe it's as old as babel old as the fall it's normal and to most people it's invisible but I'd like to suggest that the war may have recently entered a new phase, and that what we'll marks this phase is its increasing visibility to an increasing number of people. Front lines have gotten closer to home, so to speak, and far out thought experiments like bombs seem nearer to reality than they used to be. And here, I'm just gonna go mention the whole COVID thing and move on. If I'm right that we're in a new phase of the war, and the reason for it is pretty straightforward. It's the technology, stupid to quote Bill Clinton. But this is a ruse actually. Technology expands choice by foreclosing options. New capacities generate new duties. You must do what you can. Most striking example of this is probably the argument, and it's a perfectly coherent argument, that because we can block puberty, we must, in order to prevent children from suffering life in a body that did not, they did not choose to have. This is a real argument, by the way. And the thing about this argument is that, while it's just as far out as Nussbaum's, if not more so, it's just the logical bleeding edge of an orthodoxy that already rules in hospitals, schools, and other institutions. It's the tip of the spear plunged back into the heart of everyday life where people can feel it. Now, I've spent some time on the war on suffering and have emphasized that it's in this new phase of obviousness because I think it's the best way to p- approach my subject, which is politics of reenchantment. And I'm betting that this audience already has a good sense of what this phrase might mean too. We have Paul here as our keynote, after all. I think it's fair to something like to say that something like reenchantment is is one of his themes. But it's not just Paul. Reenchantment is is in the air. Uh, I have a student, an especially precocious student, probably my best one, who has taken to uh, introduce all of his interventions in the class with a complete non sequitur. He says whatever he wants to say. And he just says, "Also, fairies are real." And he sits down. And I think, "Yeah, you're you're a sign of something." I'm not sure exactly what it is. <laughs> what I want to suggest is that if there is this growing desire for reenchantment, it's a direct response to the accelerated war on suffering, and we have to see that clearly if it's going to be a good response. Because part of what I want to say is that the politics of reenchantment can go bad very easily put that aside for now the logic that makes the one a response to the other is pretty simple but I want to tease it out war on suffering is a rejection of the terms of that cosmic deal the good soldiers in the war would force us to trade meaning for relief from suffering meaning is the first casualty of the war of course that trade doesn't actually work we do not get relief from suffering we just get the other kind of suffering that comes from meaninglessness which is much worse, as evidenced by the fact that people who are suffering from meaninglessness seek relief in pain. Johnny Cash, covering Improbably a Song by Nine Inch Nails, sings, I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. War on suffering is a war on the meaning of the material world material reality that has meaning the green fire is not out there floating in the air nothing but a metaphor the green fire is there in the wolf's eye burns in that blob of jelly and nerve in the hollow of her skull where it doesn't burn at all so you can see why the newly obvious war on suffering is a war on the embodied world might provoke a new longing for lost meaning for the lost green fire this is the desire for re-enchantment and you can see why those who are moved by this desire, and I count myself among them, might talk so much about the importance of the physical, of the material, of nature, human and otherwise, of what Matthew Crawford calls the world outside your head. Our slogan might as well be make matter matter again. But with that little echo of an actual political slogan, I'll turn to the real subject of my talk, which is not reenchantment per se, but the politics of reenchantment, which is a politics of resistance. Although that's a word that I use advisedly because pretty much everybody these days likes to imagine that they're a member of la resistance, you know, stylishly fighting Nazis or something, but. Now, one thing you might notice about this resistance is that it seems to show up in a lot of different forms that don't always seem compatible. Think about that list of names that Paul has been called. On one level, this is just normal politics, which traditionally makes for strange bedfellows but I think there's another more basic tension that relates directly to the logic of the war on suffering. World that the war on suffering leaves in its wake is characterized by what the essayist David Samuels calls flatness. Go back to Nussbaum's argument about the wolf and the deer. One rebuttal to Nussbaum is that the wolf's nature is to torture the deer and that our properly human nature is to not torture and rape and dominate and so on. The fire in the wolf's eye is wolfish fire tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. The fire in the, human, in the human eye is human fire, a more complex thing. We have the wolf in us, but we are not wolves. We're different kinds of creatures. But what Nussbaum does is to reduce everything to the question, can it suffer? And all creatures presumably can suffer. The effect of this morally seductive question is to flatten all the distinctions between kinds and thus all distinctions between kinds of suffering. It is strange to suggest as she does the suffering of a deer being eaten is the same kind of thing as the suffering of a woman being raped and more precisely that that, while they're different the difference is not morally significant in terms of what we ought to do about it not morally significant enough to prevent us from concluding from her argument for example that if men are naturally disposed to violence against women then their bodies should also be should also be modified to prevent that violence or perhaps alternatively that they should be given sex robots so that they can vent their lusts harmlessly just like the wolf should be given lab grown meat not morally significant enough to prevent the flattening of the sexes which we ought to understand is not a denial of the bodily differences between male and female but rather a denial of those that those bodily differences matter and eventually an insistence that if they have come to matter without us without to us without our consent then they must be forced to not matter as in the idea of default to pretty blockers this is flatness every distinction any real material difference that gives structure and form to experience must be flattened. But what I want to emphasize about flatness, and this will bring us back to the politics of reenchantment, is that the flat world can be experienced by us malcontents as simultaneously a world of anarchy and a world of tyranny. Metaphor makes good sense of this. It is anarchy because the limits that bring meaning. The boundaries between wolf and man, between man and woman are flattened. Everyone and everything is the same. Everything reduced to its materiality, which when it is divorced from its meaning is all interchangeable. A world of atoms bouncing around in a void. Of course, it also takes a lot of force to flatten reality. And this is why the flat world can also feel like a tyranny. The War on suffering is a steamroller. It's no surprise that the if the politics of enchantment reenchantment of resistance to flat world often seems like an alliance between people who might call themselves conservatives on the one hand and people who might call themselves radicals or perhaps libertarians on the other the conservatives see the anarchy and look for lost meaning and order the radicals see the tyranny and look for lost meaning and liberty the radicals look at the conservatives order and see more tyranny while the conservatives look at the radicals liberty and see more anarchy get more specific than this by understanding who exactly is driving the steamroller. Thing to see about flat world is that for the most part, it's not being built by citizens wielding political power by institutions which are anti-political to their core. If some of you were at last year's conference, you might remember I talked about this, about Alistair McIntyre's distinction between institutions and practices. A practice is, for example, running marathons. It's a human activity that aims at a goal it's shaped by that goal which limits the activity says what it can and can't be institution is made to house a practice to make it possible a set of rules or incentives to be more precise you could run 26.2 miles without entering an organized race but we organize races rules and specifically with prizes to encourage the practice the thing about institutions is they can also destroy practices By offering a prize for winning the race, the institution makes cheating a possibility. Get to the car, get to the finish line, and win without engaging in the practice of running. So institutions make it possible to engage in practices, but they can also be where practices go to die. If everybody cheats, we forget how to run. It is the institution of medicine, not the practice of medicine, that medicalizes childbirth and flattens gender in the name of the war on suffering. It's institutions that wage the war on meaning, not least because meaning comes from limits, limits to what we should do when it turns out we can do it. And those are limits to what an institution should do to expand its power. And institutions divorced from practices exist for the sake of their own growth, like cancer. The radical sees the tyranny not of power in the abstract and not even of political power, but of practice-free institutions in particular. And the liberty that she wants is freedom from those cancerous institutions, from the moral and sometimes legal pressure that they use to advance their war on suffering. It's why my wife drives an hour away to a hospital that isn't quite so divorced from the practice of medicine. The conservative sees anarchy, but it's not the anarchy that comes from the absence of organized political power so much, it's the anarchy that comes from the exercise of institutional power, from the steamrolling moral pressure that they apply to our souls. The radical and the conservative, at least the kind that I have in mind, are talking about the same thing. The war on suffering today is waged mainly by institutions divorced from practices, and so politics of reenchantment should be, I think, mainly a politics of resistance to these institutions in particular. Any institution that's supposed to house a, pra- house a practice but which has devo- devoured the practice and survives now by pretending it still exists to heal, to educate, to produce goods, to govern, to connect people to God. It's clarifying to see the politics of reenchantment in light of the relation between institutions and practices because reenchantment is a search for the lost meaning of the real world. And this is exactly what a practice is. Practices are how we make contact. With a meaningful reality. Chop craft is soul craft, as Crawford put it. And it's important to see, this, see it this way because the obvious danger of a politics of reenchantment is that it will be the opposite a politics of escape from meaningless reality and escape into our heads, as opposed to an effort to get into the world outside our heads. This is probably the first thing most people would think about if they heard the word reenchantment. They'd think about the sad sacks who are just dabbling in fantasies they think about the people who spend a lot of time complaining about the emptiness of the modern world I think they're going to feel less empty if they dress up like an ancient warrior on the weekends or something they think about people who are high on their own supply people who are desperately trying to make their story come true they would be right to think about this because there's plenty of that around but I'd suggest that trying desperately to make your story come true is exactly what the war on suffering encourages us to do maybe it's the only thing that leaves us capable of doing. Nothing is more superstitious in the idea that you can evade suffering by using technology to escape the significance of your body. Make your story come true is the slogan of the gender clinic. Something you might have expected me to talk about when you heard that I was going to talk about re is God, which I haven't mentioned at all. Fortunately for me I don't have much time so I can't get into it. But I've been talking about the material world, about nature. What about the supernatural? Is the green fire really all in the eye? I'll say in passing that my interest in reenchantment is partly coming from my own recent experience of something like reenchantment, a kind of reconversion to the simpler faith of my childhood. And I know others in my circle have experienced something similar. Maybe this is part of why it feels to me like it's something in the air. Let me just say this in closing. The practical everyday work of reenchantment is the rediscovery not of meaning in the abstract, but of practices that put us in contact with meaningful reality by putting us in touch with our limits. And I think this focus on humble everyday practices is the right way to point to a transcendent God. It's not the God that makes America great again, or whatever it's not the God of big things that's the trigger itch again, I think Heidegger is right only a God can save us now. But it's the God of small things. I think we reenchant the world not with grand plans, but with one small thing at a time. So it's not surprising that I'll conclude by saying that the politics of reenchantment, if it's going to be a good response to the war on suffering, and not a bad one, has to be a local politics. But if that brings us down to earth, then it also invests the idea of localism with its full cosmic significance. Localism isn't just a strategy of governance or an escape into the bush or a a sop to our nostalgia. Localism is how we make matter matter again. Thanks. I
3: want to talk about stories. I want to talk about a particular story, one that uh, we might even think of in terms of its mythic structure, uh, and it, I think, is the story of our time, one that we need to pay attention to, and that's the story of Babel. It's a universal story. Cultures around the world have it uh, in various versions. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on, on the, the Western version that's, that's, that's maybe most familiar from the Bible, but the basic story that, that keeps returning is familiar. There's a it comes in the wake of the flood, there's a disaster, and then a group of people move to the plain. And motivated by what uh, seems to be a collection or a combination of fear and ambition, uh, they're they motivated to act collectively and embark on a project. And the goals of this project are, are multiple but the specific idea is to build a tower. Why? Well, one reason we might imagine is to escape another flood. Pretty good idea if you think there's gonna be more water coming uh, to to build something high. Another suggestion, this is suggested by Josephus uh, very specifically, is to do battle explicitly with God. In fact, the story that Josephus tells has Nimrod as the agent of this, of this project, and every night he climbs to the top of the tower and gazes into the heavens. And as the tower gets higher and higher, archers begin shooting arrows into the sky. And eventually they return with blood on them, suggesting that the project is nearing its completion, and a full-on assault of the heavens is near at hand. Another thing that we see in terms of a motive for this enterprise, it's stated very explicitly in the book of Genesis, is to make a name for ourselves. That's a pregnant sentence, and we're going to return to that in a bit. But I think the biblical version of this story only makes sense in light of the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. In other words, the Babel story is a retelling of the story of creation and fall. But it's not at the individual level. It's a political retelling of the same cycle, the same dynamic. We see at the beginning of Genesis those opening words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the humans are placed in a garden. According to the prophet Ezekiel, uh, he suggests that, the, that Eden was, as he put it, the holy mountain of God. So here we have the heaven and the earth, and the place where the people are, are put is a mountain a kind of in-between the heaven and the earth. It's suggestive of of Sinai, of the Mount of Transfiguration from the New Testament. It invokes a cosmological vision of a hierarchical order that in a sense is recapitulated with the specific story of the creation of Adam, where God takes the, the, the dust of the earth the lower, and, and fuses his breath into, into this creature. We have man made in the image of God, uh, but also somehow participating, providing a kind of unifying example of the higher and the lower. And the man is given dominion to rule the creation. The kind of steward of the king. And it's interesting that the very first thing we see God doing explicitly in the creation story is speaking into existence, creating ex nihil. And by an intentional parallel, the very first thing that we see Adam doing is speaking, intelligible speaking. He names the animals. God speaks when He creates and He calls it good. Man takes the undifferentiated whole and makes distinctions through naming. God says, let there be, and man says, this is all." In this regard, man is imitating God in a way that's proper to God's image bearer. And I think in light of this story, it wouldn't be... Too far of a stretch to suggest that that a human being is properly understood is a namer. Homo namer, perhaps would be a nice, condensed understanding of what it means to be human. And when we name, we make distinction. We express the order of the creation. And we do this using the the almost inexplicable power of a simple word, namely, is. We say, this is that. Or we say, this is not that, which is another kind of naming, because it's making a distinction. And as Jason Peters spoke about this morning, I think the act of imagination is an un- avoidable aspect of this ongoing task of naming. For naming did not, was not a one-time event. It's the ongoing prerogative and responsibility of human beings. Politics begins with right naming. And right naming is the right use of the logos. A Logos is a Greek word. We've all heard it. It has a, a kind of complex set of, of meanings. It can mean words. It can mean rational principle, cause. It implies a, an ordered hierarchy. As soon as Christians, at least, hear that word logos, we're immediately taken to God, John's Gospel, where he opens with a kind of hymn of creation. It's a, it's a highly stylized retelling of the story of creation even begins with the same words, in the beginning. He refines and brings out a particular aspect using what may be the most profound sentence ever written. In the beginning was the word. The Logos is at the heart of reality. Naming well Is inseparable from participation in the Logos. And Logos is rational order. Therefore, misnaming, bad naming, is anti Logos. Anti Logos is anti rational by definition. It's a confusion of the created order. And confusion is the meaning of Babel. Thus, bad naming is anti-Logos, which is synonymous with the spirit of Babel. Let's return now to that story from Genesis chapter 11. The motive explicitly laid out there is we're gonna make a name for ourselves. What does that mean? In light of what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, He names the man and gives the man the task of naming the rest of creation. And we see in the Babel story, the man saying, the men saying, the the human being saying, let's name ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves, which is a kind of enterprise of self-naming. It's an explicit usurpation of God's divine authority. It's rejecting the name, the identity given by God, and seeking to self-create. It's an assertion of autonomy. Autonomy from God, which is autonomy from the created order, which is autonomy from reality, which is a pretty good definition of insanity. And I want to think about this naming enterprise through the, the lens of the concept of the symbol, it's been pointed out by a lot of people in recent years that, that symbol, that word is, a, is derived from a complex compound Greek word, meaning to throw together. So symbolic a symbol is, is putting two things together that, that ought to be put together. It'd be said to, to name well, but in contrast, diabolical is derived from a complex Greek word, meaning to to tear apart or to throw apart. Quite literally, it's it's diabolical when two things that ought to be joined are, are torn apart. But I think more subtly, perhaps, it's equally diabolical when two things that ought not to be put together are forced together. And I think there is a relationship between the symbolic and the erotic. And I don't mean the sexual, but I do mean loving attraction or desire. When two things that ought to be joined come together, fruitfulness is the result. A biological fact, we all know, but it also applies to ideas, to concepts. For when two things that ought to be joined come together in a mind, Meaning is the result. Eros draws together things that naturally cohere, and love gives birth to fruits. It's an iron clad rule of reality. But there's also a relationship between the diabolic and the thanatotic, which is a Greek word meaning ordered toward death. When things that don't or that do belong together are torn apart. When things that don't belong together are compelled to be joined, the offspring is sterility, fruitlessness. Concepts or ideas that are torn apart or, or badly combined result in confusion, which is tantamount to the death of intelligibility, which is again the meaning of Babel. The politics of Babel, is the politics of confusion, irrationality, and ultimately death. And the motives are clear. It's always a combination of fear or anxiety and ambition, hubris. And those those motives, fear and, and ambition, result in collective action that in its most developed stage results in an attempt to silence the sins. The first century Jew- Jewish writer, Pseudo uh, Philo, has a retelling of the Bible story in which he has Abraham as a character in the story. And Abraham is one of just a few who refuse to participate in the tower enterprise. And he is condemned to die. Narrowly escapes with his life because Babel projects can tolerate no dissent. And the motives of fear and ambition resulting in collective action are amplified by a technology. In the story of Babel, we're told explicitly they built a tower using bricks and mortar, something that, that, that amplified their power. What's interesting, the bricks are made from dirt from dust. Remember what Adam was made by or from. Adam quite literally means of the ground. So the very stuff that God used to make a man, these ambitious, frightened individuals aspiring to build something on their own, apart from God, take the very stuff of man and put it to fire. Burn it so it can be solidified so that The various components can be stacked one on top of the other and used to aggrandize their project. Babel is confusion, and the confusion is a result of willful denial and abandonment of reality. In short, the politics of Babel is rooted in irrationality. It's the politics of insanity, which is the politics of the diabolical. There's a hopeful end to this story. It's not often read as a hopeful story, but think about it. They are embarking on an insane project, and it fails. That's good. Babel projects must fail. In the biblical accounts, God adds to their confusion because the confusion was there before God got involved. They're already insane. He scrambles their language and breaks up the enterprise. But the principle, I think, is a general one. The irrational, the confused, the diabolical cannot endure. The order of creation includes a kind of center of gravity that eventually pulls things toward itself, and that is a source of hope. The logocentric, the human scale, the sane, the symbolic, ordered by a loving union with the real, stands as a persistent critique of Babel. It's also a light in the darkness that draws those who will but see to a better shore. St. John writes, in him, that is in Christ, the Logos, in him was light, and that light was the life of the world. Life, light, logos, these are ultimately inseparable. Just as darkness, death, and confusion go hand in hand. Our world, I think it's safe to say, and Paul Kingsnorth has given us ample evidence, our world is deeply implicated in a Babel project. The various components, which are readily visible even if perhaps the complete outline is harder to discern. What Paul calls the machine, that is part of a contemporary Babel project. Globalization, the abolition of nations, so too, part of this project. Artificial intelligence and transhumanism, a cashless economy, The techno utopianism that seems to be expanding all around us, it's all a part of a common enterprise. We examine the motives, haven't changed. It's a combination of anxiety, of fear, combined with monumental hubris. Practical politics of Babel, collective action, and ultimately the attempt to silence all opposition. And it's amplified by the technologies that we are embracing with reckless abandon. Babel is not a one-time event. It's a persistent human temptation. The politics of Babel is the opposite of anything resembling sanity, or that which is suited to life. The alternative to the politics of Babel is, and always will be, the politics of the Logos. For only therein is it possible to locate meaning, intelligibility, fruitfulness, and life.
0: We live in an age of collapse. Major media outlets use words like stunning and tectonic. You describe the results of a poll that was released in March of this year. The headline at the Wall Street Journal, which funded the survey was, America pulls back from values that once defined it, with the subtitle, Patriotism, Religion, and Hard Work Hold Less Importance. Writing out The Dispatch, commentator Nick Cattagio dubbed it The Poll, capital T, capital P. The poll made news because of what seemed a dramatic drop in just a four-year period. For example, 61% said in 2019 that patriotism was very important to them, but only 38% in 2023. COVID probably uh, was part of the story. But the numbers were likely also affected by a change in methodology from phone interviews with real people to online surveys. As Cattagio summarized, human beings, it turns out, are less likely to admit to other human beings that they're not feeling patriotic or religious or inclined to have kids. A live interviewer might judge you for having those feelings. After all, a machine will not. Now, at this conference, we could run with that quote a whole lot more. But that's not what I'm going to do. I just couldn't resist tossing it in. Uh, For my purposes, though, it suffices to say that removing that last vestige of interpersonal connection was a bit like the final few inches of asphalt giving way and revealing a sinkhole that had been forming for a long time. Sinkholes are appearing across the cultural landscape of America especially when it comes to religion. Overall, the poll showed religion as very important to 62% of Americans in 1998, but only 39% in 2023. Charles Murray closed the chapter on religiosity in his 2012 book, Coming Apart, with the graph of what he called the religious core, essentially the highly active church members. And the trend lines were headed down for both his upper-crust conglomeration, Belmont, and his working-class, Fishtown. Murray writes of the core in the latter, Fishtown's reduction from 22% in the first half of the 1970s to 12% in the last half of the 2000s does seem significant from any perspective. Such a small figure leaves the religious core not as a substantial minority that is still large enough to be a major force in the community, but as a one out of eight group of people who are increasingly seen as oddballs. Recent Christian book titles like The Great Dechurching and Losing Our Religion underscore that the downward trajectory continues. Taylor's Philip Jenkins recently surveyed the data and concluded distressing as it is to report, the United States is now finally joining the secularism of the other nations of the West. He notes that religious nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, are projected to be the American majority by 2060. The withering of religion has ripple effects throughout our shared life. A data-laden piece with charts on abortion, gay marriage, premarital sex, pot and porn, Ryan Burge recently demonstrated that on every single social issue, the average American is more liberal today than they were just two decades ago. The headline at Real Clear Politics Liberals have won the culture war. Okay, enough for the depressing opener. Or at least it's depressing to me, though I realize the porch draws a wide variety of opinions on social issues. The rest of the talk will not center on any particular option, Benedictine or otherwise. But for those of us who, to some extent, have identified with the goals of the religious right, I do hope that the reality of our present situation will serve as something of a come-to-Jesus moment and lead to a thoughtful reassessment of the past and a recalibration for the future. Now, the decades of effort from the religious right have not been completely fruitless. The Dobbs decision finally undid a great legal and moral wrong, but we must soberly acknowledge that our nation is a long way from the 1980s hope for a moral majority. And going forward, the Republican coalition will be increasingly dominated by the irreligious right. The aforementioned Ryan Burge wrote a piece at Politico just last month titled, The Religious Rights Grip on the GOP is Weakening. That's working to Trump's
3: advantage. So, How should we then live now? As a practical solution,
0: I suggest re-examining the roots of the religious right and embracing an early green shoot that was too quickly pruned back. Most social movements are the result of multiple leaders and networks overlapping across decades, and the modern religious right is no exception. But if you had to choose one person as an intellectual godfather for the movement, the choice is clear and that man would be the person that christianity today called over a decade after his death our saint francis and that francis is francis Schaefer. scholars on both the left and the right agree that it was Schaefer who catalyzed the mobilization of evangelical christians on abortion an issue that many including even Schaefer himself had dismissed as previously just a catholic issue now on a college campus More introduction is probably in order as I am likely the youngest people to have any direct memory of Schaefer and his work and I am no spring chicken. Schaefer was born in 1912 to a working class family in Germantown, Pennsylvania. He focused on vocational studies like wood and metalworking in high school, enjoyed hiking and swimming outdoors. There were also chants or perhaps providential encounters with classical music and philosophy that ignited a very bright mind. His higher education occurred amid the battles between modernist and fundamentalist in the 1930s, with Schaefer always on the fundamentalist side. Francis met his future wife, Edith, after both asked probing questions of a liberal speaker at a church event. Schaefer was a local Presbyterian pastor for 10 years, primarily in Grove City, Pennsylvania, where this event was held last year, and St. Louis, Missouri. In 19- 1947, uh, Schaefer is off to Europe. That leads to Schaefer and his wife and three young girls uh, later moving on a shoestring budget full-time to Europe in 1948. Rather organically, the empathy and teaching skills of Francis combined with the incredible hospitality orchestrated by Edith coalesced into something they called Le Brie, French for the shelter. Located in the Swiss Alps, the chalets of Le Brie Drew globe-trotting spiritual searchers via word of mouth. Schaefer's work gained notoriety when Time Magazine published a 1960 article entitled "Mission to Intellectuals." Informal after-dinner talks on modern culture and the Bible, made to 20 or so people, were eventually recorded and later edited into books like *The God Who Is There*. And then, in the late 1970s, Schaefer, prodded by his son known as Frankie, moved to a new medium with the film series, How Should We Then Live? That was followed by Whatever Happened to the Human Race, where he paired with future Surgeon General, Dr. C. Everett Koop, to focus on abortion and other life issues. Schaefer's speeches would reach tens of thousands, including addresses to packed houses at places as diverse as the Evangelical Wheaton College and the elite Harvard University. He and Edith both had book sales in the millions. I'm again took notice when in 1984, he died at the age of 72 after a multi year struggle with cancer. John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute, who rose to prominence on Schaefer's coattails, summarized his impact in 2007, saying, without the influence of Francis Schaefer, the so called Christian right of today would not exist. It is highly unlikely that people such as pat robertson jerry falwell J- james dobson and tim lahaye i realize some of you might need an explanation on those people but i don't have time for that uh, and others would not have had the political influence that they wield this despite this is this again still whitehead speaking this despite the fact that much of what comes out of the mouths of these people would today alarm francis Schaeffer. Indeed, much of Schaefer's story runs counter to today's expectations for a Christian conservative. At 18, frustrated by the treatment of women on a factory floor, he joined an impromptu strike and lost his job during the Depression. He regularly crossed color lines, and in St. Louis, said that he would resign if the congregation he served moved to the suburbs. Those who encountered Francis Schaefer throughout his life regularly commented on his kindness and attentive listening. In the 1960s, when most fundamentalists embraced isolationism, Schaefer studied rather than skewered the culture, becoming well versed in the films of Fellini and the music of Jefferson Airplane. While he embraced politics in the 1980s, Schaefer wrote in his book, A Christian Manifesto, we should not wrap Christianity in our national flag. And he repeatedly warned of the dangers of authoritarianism. Now, abortion would emerge as a key focus during the final years of his life, but Schaefer arguably first set the groundwork for that effort in a short book called Pollution and the Death of Man, first published in 1970. Typical of Schaefer, he was aware of and thoughtfully engaged with one of the most important works to come out of the environmental movement namely The Historic Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis by Lynn White Jr. several ways, White was the inverse of Schaefer. While Schaefer was raised in a largely irreligious home, with a father that directly opposed his desire to become a minister and his burgeoning fundamentalism, White grew up in a very religion-focused household, the son of a Calvinist professor of Christian ethics, And White would himself obtain a master's degree from the Modernist Union Seminary before pursuing medieval history as a focus. But both White and Schaefer saw the importance of ideas in shaping culture, and they both crafted theories of history centered on the ideas of Christianity. Professor White used his perch as a historian at UCLA to lay blame for a polluted world at the feet of a Christianity that had obliterated reverence for the earth and empowered science and technology to exploit it in unprecedented ways. And with that basic assessment, Schaefer largely agreed, calling White's work a brilliant article. Schaefer also tipped his hat to the hippies, writing The hippies of the 60s were right in fighting the plastic culture, and the church should have been fighting it too, a long, long time ago before the counterculture ever came onto the scene. More than this, they were right in the fact that the plastic culture, modern man, the mechanistic worldview in university textbooks and in practice, the total threat of the machine, the establishment technology, the bourgeois upper middle class is poor in its sensitivity to nature. Machine is eating up nature on every side. Daffer criticized what he called platonic Christianity, which was focused exclusively on a heavenly tomorrow and had no role for the physical creation of today. Schaefer contended that Platonic Christianity was not authentic biblical Christianity. And Schaefer then detailed a hierarchy of God, man, animal, plant, and machine. By machine, here he seems to mean physical objects and their utilitarian functions. Uniquely, humans had a dual role, he said, separated from nature, yet related to it. Because of our finiteness, each person was as separate from God as a flower or a rock. But for Schaeffer, this was a real kinship. Psychologically, he said, I ought to feel a relationship to the tree as my fellow creature. Yet man was not, as the pantheists claimed, the mere equal of a tree. Here the Judeo-Christian concept of humans being created in the image of God becomes important. Schaefer's key emphasis was that the special status for an image bearing humanity did not obliterate the connectedness of humanity to the rest of God's creation. Each level of the created hierarchy was to be treated with what Schaefer called integrity. Differences were real and significant. The intrinsic value of all things should be affirmed. Every stone and buttercup merited awe as a creation of God. And so Schaefer highlighted the work of the great architect Frank Lloyd Wright for his efforts to consider the integrity of the terrain when building upon it. Conversely, strip mining was called the ravishing of our fair sister for the sake of greed. Christian college was criticized for disregarding an ancient grove of trees. Calvinist farmers were admonished for abusing their livestock business people were warned against treating other people as mere cogs in a profit making machine and men were chastised for treating women as mere sex objects. In short, treating things with integrity meant the embrace of limits, we must not Schaefer wrote allow ourselves individually nor our technology to do everything we or it can do. Schaefer called for the church to act as what he called a pilot plant, demonstrating the possibility of a substantial healing of creation in the here and now. However, Schaefer lamented that evangelicals were instead practicing a sub-Christianity and had largely missed the opportunity save the earth for man and the opportunity to reach the 20th century with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now almost a quarter of the way through the 21st century, we are seeing more evidence that Schaefer was right to be concerned. Regarding the value of preborn persons, the one issue where the religious right firmly embrace the idea of biblical integrity over mechanistic utilitarianism, the church has achieved some success. Yet that success has been limited by a failure to consistently extend the integrity concept to lower levels of the created order. Sadly, the religious right instead became meshed in a political coalition that deified the market and too often treated postborn people and nature as cogs in that globalized profit making machine of which Schaefer warned. Evangelical left which incidentally also drew some of its inspiration for Schaefer, but more from the likes of Ron Sider and Jim Wallace did better on civil rights, but became the caboose of liberalism on sexual social issues, expressing some discomfort with abortion and gay marriage, but never enough to keep them from voting for the Democrat of the day. Overall, the result has been the production of paranoid, schizophrenic political culture, where each of the major sides is inconsistent in its own logic, but antagonistic to those who think differently. Now, about a decade ago, I was at a farm to table event at Joel Salatin's Polyface Farms in Virginia. The crowd there ranged from ponytailed and tie dyed old hippies to young Mennonite mamas in their uh, white bonnets. At lunch, I sat down with a man who had an InfoWars ball cap on. Uh, He shared with me that he played in a military band and taught some at uh, Patrick Henry College. He said with a smile that he had gone so far right that he started to bump into people going left. There aren't too many areas of common ground where people going right and people going left can bump into each other amicably these days. Schaefer thought that the issue of ecology should be one of those. Russell Kirk was another conservative luminary who had similar thoughts. In Pollution and the Death of Man, Schaefer tells of lecturing in the 1960s at a Christian school, which had as its neighbors a bohemian community of hippies on the other side of a rugged valley. Schaefer thought the farm commune was beautiful, and so he took a trip over there. He says, we got on very well and we talked of ecology and I was able to speak of the Christian answer to life and ecology. Schaeffer was given a full tour and told that he was the first to come to them from across the ravine in that manner. Together, Schaefer and the hippies then looked back at the Christian College and agreed that it was ugly. And Schaefer saw this as an example of a Christianity that is failing to take into account man's responsibility and proper relationship to nature. In the final pages of his book, Schaefer writes, In conclusion then, We may say that if things are treated only as autonomous machines in a decreated world, they are finally meaningless. But if that is so, then inevitably so am I, man, equally autonomous and also equally meaningless. But if individually and in the Christian community, I treat the things which God has made with integrity and treat them this way lovingly because they are his things change. If I love the lover, I love what the lover has made. Perhaps this is the reason why so many Christians feel an unreality in their Christian lives. They don't love what the lover has made in the area of man, in the area of nature, and really love it because he made it. They really love the lover. We live in an age of collapse. Yes, in practice it was always flawed. But the broad Christian moral consensus that once served to connect America was an important piece of cultural infrastructure that is now in dire need of repair. The religious right of today only seems equipped to address potholes on the surface, not the broken water mains underneath. Nor is it always clear that evangelicals once known for their evangelization truly see liberals and democrats and tree huggers as lost people created in the image of God, rather than mere adversaries to be vanquished in pitched political street battles. As the religious right ponders the future, the movement would do well to look back upon the full thought of one of its most important founders. At his best, Francis Schaeffer was a person filled with compassion for his fellow man and for all his fellow creatures. A person who was willing to go across the ravine in the service of both. Until next time may you caucus well and thanks for pulling up a chair
3: find your way home